a young girl, she had a modeling career. But the photographer snuck up from the rear. He undid her dress. You can imagine the rest. Based on experience, that's why she's so comfortable here. <laughs> you don't want to make her mad. She knows people. Oh, she knows. And they know her. She's the only person in the witness protection program who still has a bag over her head. <laughs> and she sure don't need one, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. We'll get to this woman. We'll be grilling her like a swordfish. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair is Don Wolfman. The brilliant and talented Judy Faye, best trade woman since Margaret Dumont. And our special guest today, she is so lovely, it's too bad that radio is less than television without pictures. Her name is Georgia Turan. Hi there, Georgia. How you doing? How you doing? Better and better. You know, when I was a young boy, thinking back, never been kissed, wondering what I'd missed. Oh, that's a different song. Uh, way back when? Way back when. Yeah, way back when. By the way, welcome to our room. <laughs> is this something new? It no, is because usually people are on the phone. Right? Well, I usually sit here and listen to everybody else, so I'm on this time. Yeah, I met uh, yeah. met Georgia right here in the Lighten Up Lounge of Matt Allen's program, and I said, now there's a woman who looks like she should be poked by several organized crime people. <laughs> well, I, I, I met Georgia a few years back through Matt also, but uh, he had told me the stunt woman's coming over there, and I had this vision of somebody that was going to be uh, pressing, jerking 250 pounds. Oh, no, no, no. Not this. <laughs> no, she is a Fox. driver. She crashes Italian cars, very expensive ones, oh, during yeah. commercial shoots. <laughs> now, you started your modeling career when you were like, you know, seven or something ridiculous. Twelve. Well, that's close enough for government work. But when I was a young guy, I'd walk into what was called Tallman's Drugstore in Walla Walla, Washington, and there was a stand-up cardboard cutout of this Kodak girl in a bikini looking sweet and innocent and photographable. And that was you. That was me. That was the first time Kodak used a bikini. If Ooh. you could call that a bikini, it was up to my waist. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't really <laughs> And up to her neck on top. Then they did, now they don't. <laughs> you must have got rich off of that unless you had a lousy agent. Well, when that came out, you know, we did it a year before it actually came out. So by the time it came out, I was uh, nine months pregnant. So, so you couldn't go on tour in the bikini exactly. for a Kodak. Huh? Exactly. The way the bikini was done, it gave you sort of the all-American girl look in a sort of a bikini. And it was just, it just great image, great image. Yeah, it was yeah. it was sexy without being uh, seductive. It was like, hi, I'm I'm nice, but gee, I look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, those were the years when we wore modified bikinis. Am I right? Uh, yeah. And and everybody I didn't wore personally. them. They, well, you, bro, you were evening. Not till later. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's amazing how many people remember that. That I don't know why that particular summer girl stood out, but when I did my first book signing. Uh, we did it, and we launched it in Rochester, New York, which is the home of Kodak. And this girl comes up to me, and she says, "I remember that picture because it was standing behind me. The photographer who took it brought it, brought the life-size cutout, and stood it behind me." And I looked at her, and she was like 19 years old. I said, honey, there's no way you can remember that. I said, you weren't even born when we took that. And she said, oh, but I remember it. My brother had an antique store, and he had one. <laughs> oh, no. That's wonderful to know that you're in an antique yeah, store. So you're looking for. <laughs> oh. That's funny stuff. Well, you know, as they say, if you compare your outsides, excuse me, if you compare your insides to other people's outsides, you know, your life to what it looks like other people have. You go, oh, gee, they have the perfect life. You know, a young lady could, could look at you, say, like, say, 23 years old, and look at your career, your life, and say, she is blessed. 
She has everything. A fantastic career, probably one of the most photographed women in the world. She's got a nice figure, a nice face. She's got a kid. She's probably got money, you know, dropping out of every orifice. She's about happily married to some businessman somewhere. Mm-hmm. Everything's fantastic. It's all done with mirrors. And, and a lot <laughs> smoke. of smoke. Yeah. yeah. But the reality was... Well, the reality was, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know that I was, I was pretty. I, I was raped when I was 17 years old, and I lost all of my self-esteem. I was a virgin at the time, and I really, I didn't think I was pretty. I didn't think, you know, anybody liked me, and the mob kind of opened the door and they let me in. I felt welcomed in that world, and I felt protected in that world. But how did you get welcomed into that world? What was your answer? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I was when I was like 13 years old. I was in this hood kind of uh, hangout diner, and um, two guys in their 20s were hitting on me and my girlfriend. And this guy sitting all by himself in, in a booth is watching this whole thing take place, and they were being very crude. He gets up. And he takes these two guys outside and proceeds to beat the living hell out of them. Mm. And turns out that he was, not at the time, he, he turned out to be the godfather of upstate New York, of Rochester. Mm. And he watched me grow up, and he kind of protected me. And I, he'd see me coming into these clubs. I was 16, and you had to be 18 at the time to drink. But he'd nod to the bouncer and say, just, you know, let her in. And he'd, he'd watch me, make sure that nobody hassled me. And he became like my big brother. And uh, with a big club. Well, that's uh, that's a nice way to be protected. Oh yeah, I felt very protected in that world. I felt very welcome and very at home there. And uh, then when I graduated from high school, I moved to New York City to further my modeling career and got a job in an after-hour club. And I was there. I just set a drink down in front of somebody, and like as soon as I did that, this guy pulled out a gun. He's five feet away from me. Shot the guy next to him, and everybody scattered the club and the owner who I was dating at the time threw me the car keys and said Georgie girl go get the car pull it up and I ran down two flights of stairs and I got the car pulled it up and they got his body down two flights and and threw him in the back seat and I drove to Bellevue Hospital and I would see a cop and I knew and I was 17 years old you know Jeez. and I just knew I had to slow down I'd been in that world I, I knew who these guys were you know and uh, we got in front of the hospital and just dumped his body, beeped the horn, and took off. Hmm. And all they talked about was, man, Georgie girl, can you drive a car? <laughs> it was like they, they could care less whether this guy lived or died, you know? And they talked about it for months. Then I went back to Rochester for a weekend, and I ran into Sammy G., who was the godfather. And he said, I need you to do me a favor. Uh-uh. And Why don't you do one favor? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, but that's the beginning. Yeah. Always. Yeah. You know, and he'd done favors for me. But um, anyway, uh, he gives me this note, and he, he said, I can't trust anybody with this. He said, I'll have somebody pick you up at the airport. He said, just deliver this message, and don't tell anybody anything about this. So I did. I didn't know what was in it, um, but uh, I was picked up by a limousine, driven to um, a restaurant in Brooklyn, and they escorted me into this back room where sat three gentlemen, four gentlemen, and I handed the note over. But I was introduced as Georgie Girl. That's what they used to call me. And this one old guy <laughs> um, raises his eyebrow like he recognized my name. Well, he had heard about how I drove the car, you know. And it turned out to be Carlo Gambino. <laughs> and, uh, the company she keeps. <laughs> you know? I've heard the name uh, before. <laughs> 
And I had heard the name before, too, but I really didn't. At 17 years old, I didn't know the significance of who he was. You didn't connect it at all, huh? Well, I did connect it, but I just I didn't when know. When you're 17, how, you don't know, know how, how the big world he works. was, yeah. you know. Did you have any, any kind of a feeling of intimidation by it? No, no. Um, I, as I was leaving, the guy that escorted me out said, the old man really liked you. And I looked at him and I said, which old man? They were all old. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were a baby. <laughs> but I, you know, another thing, Georgia, that I found for myself, because I've been around boys, so to speak, and they do make you feel like a queen. Yes. They really yes, do. They do. And they do stick up for you. Also, yeah. if somebody else goes ahead and gets nasty with you, they stand by you no matter what. Yeah, and I thought you know. that was that was pretty cool. You know, if I, if I would walk into any bar... There would be six shot glasses lined up before I even hit the bar, and that was represented drinks that people bought for you that, you know, you had to get to at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So you delivered this uh, message. Yeah, well, that's kind of what started my driving career, Um, but it started out innocently at first, which I thought was innocent. I was just picking up packages for them, and I was dropping them off at JFK Airport. Did, did you ever ask what was in the packages? I never knew what was in them, but I did find out later it was millions of dollars. I had a suspicion. And, yeah. you know, I was turning that money over to the CIA, which I didn't know at the time. Why? And, and they were laundering the money for the mob back in the day. And people always said to me, aren't you afraid to come out with this book and talk about the mob? You know, it's been 35 years. Most of these people are dead or in jail for life, you know. And nobody nobody really cares whether I'm dead or alive anymore. But I'm afraid of the CIA, or I was at the time, until 9-11 happened. And then we realized that the CIA needs to get in bed with these guys to make things happen, you know, with the bad guys. Well, it's not the first time. Remember when uh, they tried to, uh, I guess, pre-CIA, uh, made a deal with, uh, tried to make a deal with Lucky Luciano years ago to uh, with the whole Hitler thing and the Nazis and, you know. See, I always said the... Um, the CIA, the, the, the mob may have pulled the trigger, but the CIA loaded the gun. What made you decide to write a book? And how did you have the guts to write a book? <laughs> well, I never decided to write a book. You know, I have How did this come about? I have a high school education. I never thought of myself as a writer. English was probably one of my worst subjects, right? But I was doing a Bugle Boy Jeans commercial. And I had to do a 180 on a narrow mountain road in a vintage Dino Ferrari. And the back tire caught the soft shoulder. And being it was a vintage car, had no power steering, well, I lost it. And it went over the embankment, and it was somersawing towards a 300-foot drop-off into the ocean. And all I kept thinking about as I'm somersawing to my death is, oh, my God, I'm wrecking a $250,000 car, you know? And I was fine. I was trapped in the car. They got the car off me and put me in an ambulance, even though I I wasn't really hurt. Uh, but I'm laying there in the ambulance thinking, why was the car important? Why, why, why weren't my children my thoughts? Or How old my were own you when life? this happened? This was uh, 10 years ago. Oh, that was just recent then. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, I, I went to see a therapist because I wanted to know why my life was not important. And he suggested I get a journal and write in it for 20 minutes a day. And I had never done that before. I had never analyzed my life. And the things that were coming out, they were just such buried trauma that I I hadn't, it just wasn't, it wasn't there in my, in my conscious. It was all in my subconscious. It was coming out. And I'd reread the pages and say, oh, my God, that's why I do this or that's why I did that. And then I started adding dialogue because I, I felt an, another person talking which I named. I named her Georgia Black. 
So we all have that. So Georgia Black and Georgia White are fighting through this whole thing. So I, I, I could see it was turning into a book, but I didn't have any confidence that I could write. So I called Sydney Sheldon. I said, Sydney, I think I'm writing a book here, but I don't know how to write. I said, um, <laughs> that, that can be a <laughs> you know, problematic. Yeah. I said, can you suggest a go- ghost writer? And he says, well, send me what you got. So I sent him like 40 pages of this really raw journal, but they were really traumatic things that had happened. And uh, he calls me three days later and he says, Georgia, you don't need a ghostwriter. You know how to tell a story. Really? And he really encouraged me. He said, but you are saying things about yourself that aren't pretty, very pretty. So you need to go back into your childhood and uh, get the reader to know you so when they get to these parts, they'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is important. That's that's very important. So I ended up writing the whole thing myself. Of course, he, you know, he would read my um, my chapters and he would make comments on them, and I would make changes. And, and and it was a process. It took three and a half years to write it, but it turned out to be a bestseller. Any fear of retribution in writing this kind of a book? I wasn't even thinking. You know, it just seemed like it, it. It was another lifetime. The things that I was writing about happened, but they seemed like it was an. It, it was just another lifetime and i didn't realize it until it came out the people that it affected and um did you get any letters like gee thanks a lot oh i had no i had a um i had a death threat while i was doing a a live radio show hello and um, is the phone ringing you know (laughs) and and of course that this was in rochester this was in the launch and um a lot of things that happened you know in that area were you single when you wrote this book I've been single for almost 30 years. Okay. <laughs> now, you can find her picture up on the dating service and says, Help, I've been single for 30 years. No, but actually, when the book came out, I was uh, I was dating the chief of the strike force for organized crime. <laughs> that's that's probably why you got the death threat. Wasn't the book. You switched sides. <laughs> that's like George Raft. You know, George Raft uh, you know, was pretty mobbed up with his buddies and everything. And in one film... He played an FBI agent, and they were mad at him. Yeah. How could you change sides on us? It's, it's only a movie. It's, well, only a movie. it's like the people who watch soap operas, yeah. and we know someone who called up, and I do psychic stuff sometimes, and uh, she says, oh, there's the most wonderful psychic on the soap opera. She's fabulous. <laughs> she's an actress. <laughs> she's, she's accurate because the script. <laughs> yes, so that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. <laughs> but my reaction, too, was, my god you know what are these people are they coming after you is it you know uh, is it the godfather what happened well this guy did the the one that the one that threatened me i I called the police because i was doing the uh book signing the next day did you know who made the threat i didn't know at the time but i knew as soon as he showed up (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah because you say they're not alive anymore a lot of them but what about their families well this guy just got out of jail and he was the one that um killed sammy g and um they blew him up in his car and um Anyway, uh, so I called the police and I said, "This is Georgia Durandi. I'm, you know, I, I'm doing a. We know who you are. They were, you know, because I don't oh. say really good things about the cops in my book. Yeah, you because know? <laughs> um, you know, I saw the I saw the cops, you know, on the doing, and- yeah, you know, and then I I see these guys in the mob, you know, turning on electricity for somebody who didn't have the money to do that. You know, I'd see them do good things and I'd see the cops doing bad things. So at that age, I had a very distorted view of who the good guys and bad guys were. You know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, they had to have somebody there. So they had some undercover guys there. 
There were 600 people at that book signing. People waited for four hours in line to get a book. Wow, and my next book is going to be about how I was a mafia wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody wanted to know if they were in it. Oh, yes, because you, know? you were in Rochester. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rochester. Yeah. And at the end of the night, um, you know, people had brought me flowers and champagne and, you know, people who knew me back then. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of the, the whole place is emptied out now, and I'm, I'm um, cleaning up the area. And all of a sudden, I look up, and there's these eyes right in my face and there's fire coming out of him he said where do you get my brother was shot in the back and i i had to, i had to like <laughs> step back and and uh and i realized who it was and i hadn't seen this guy in over 35 years and i said uh anthony he said i think it was documented he was shot in the back and he says well he was shot in the face he said he's my brother i ought to know where he was shot and then two cop cars pulled up they saw him they, they pulled up outside the front window. He looked up and saw him and turned around and started walking away. But he turned back and said, by the way, your friend that got killed, sorry that had to happen. And he, and he walked out the oh, door. You know? I bet you were shaking for days. Well, I had to leave that next day and do a book signing uh, in uh, Albany. And I was so afraid to leave my family behind, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when I really realized, you know, these are real people, you know. Yeah. But you were so you public know? at You're this point, it had to be like a safety net for you, too. <clears throat> well, yeah, but, you know, the guys in Rochester never did did uh, go by the rules. You know, you, you had to get permission to kill somebody. They never, you know. They, they didn't bother did. to ask. No, they just, they just killed. And uh, you felt well, Speaking you of people getting fellas. killed, we're going to take a commercial break. When we come back, I want you to tell the story of the funeral you went to where... The man you called the accountant was oh, there. Okay. We'll be right back on True Crime Ad with Dr. Bay. I'm Burl Bear, and that man producing is Matt Allen. <laughs> I love thee, let me count the ways. Is it your silky sweet wrapper? Is it your smooth bodied aromatic smoke tempting me to vices unspeakable? Padrone, the exquisite torture you bring to me, not knowing whether to smoke you, build a shrine to you, or even to eat you. A drone, Nicaraguan, to smoke or not to smoke, that is not the question. How many to smoke? Ah, now there's the question. A drone, you stood the test of time. There is no other. You stand alone. You make my life complete. A drone, with you, I'm really smoking. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. Ah, yes, I am the legendary Burl Bear. That is Don Waldman. We have Miss Judy Faye, the singing psychic from the Psychic Guy bookstore. She'll read your tarot cards and charm the numbers off your Visa and MasterCard. <laughs> 
and Georgia Durante, authoress of The Company She Keeps, a powerful and raw, deeply personal account of one woman's life and her struggle to escape the darkness. Ooh. <laughs> She was also rich and famous for a while. And she's also one of the greatest stunt drivers in the world. She doesn't look like the kind of woman who would drive like that. but No chance. No chance. She looks like anything but a stunt driver. And that's a compliment. Uh, thank you, Don. Uh, but you've got a successful company also that's still doing stunt driving right now. Was it yeah. Performance 2? It's Performance 2. I have 16 drivers that work for me, and we do all the car commercials that you see on the air. Including such unknowns as Bobby Unser Jr. Yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> what, did I hit a sore spot unknowingly? <laughs> no, Bobby's kind of been missing in action for the past couple years. Was he? Yeah. Tell, Good guy, though. Good you were talking guy. about an accountant's funeral. No, an accountant who showed up at a funeral. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, how ominous well, can an accountant be? You know, th they got to make a movie about this because it was just so bizarre. Um, this guy by the name of Jimmy the Hammer Massaro was murdered. And uh, they found him on Thanksgiving Day in 1978 in his trunk. Not 1976. Um, and he had six bullets in his head. And uh, this is how it all started. They, they, they picked up this booster and to get out of going to jail, he started talking about other things, and then it snowballed. And, and uh, the, the chief of detectives' name was Mahoney, Bill Mahoney. And he wanted to get the mob so bad that, you know, he would lie, cheat, steal, whatever he had to do to get them. So um, he, uh, he did. He had two detectives lie on the stand and say that, um, that they were there when Sammy G gave the order to kill this guy. And they never were. F. Lee Bailey was the lawyer for Sammy G at the time. And at, the, at that time, uh, he was also uh, doing Patty Hearst's case. So you got the time frame. Yeah. And um, so anyway, this murder really started a whole fireball. I mean, mob wars went on. They were killing everybody who killed any And that's how I ended up having to get out of town because I was on the list. Ooh. I knew too much. And uh, anyway... Um, at the funeral, you know, um, they always say that, you know, the one that kills you is the one that's closest to you. And he was very close to this guy by the name of Big Gene. And um, I called him the accountant because he looked like an accountant. He had big, thick glasses and he had fingers like sausages. And, you know, he, he would just pat you on the back. And it was like, you know, when's the knife coming? You know? <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Sounds like he radiated uh, evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and see, he's still alive and he's still out there. And I really hate talking about him because, you know, he, he's one guy that I am a little afraid of at this point. But... Um, we won't let anybody who has fingers like sausages in the lighting up lounge. And if they come in, Robo will cook them on the barbecue. In fact, I keep getting emails with these guys that are they're just getting out of jail now. Oh, Torpy's out. Um, you know, it's like all these guys that I talk about in my book, you know, they're all getting released now. So anyway, you're at this funeral. Yeah, so I'm at the funeral and I'm sitting with, with uh, Jimmy the Hammer's wife. And Big Gene comes in. And he walks up to her to give his condolences, and he says, I'm so sorry. And, and oh, Gene, oh, Gene, he's gone, he's gone. And, and I'm looking at him like, I know he did it. You know? <laughs> and how, yeah, he should have been an actor, my God. I mean, he, did, he just played the part so well. And then, Sammy, and then Sammy G walked in. Of course, Sammy gave the order. So he comes in with a white raincoat on. Mm, that's it, not 
appropriate. Well, it was his way of saying, you know, I, I, did, I it. did it, you know. And it, the, the funeral scene was so bizarre with all these mob guys coming in and all the games, you know, the head games that they were playing. And, and the one girl that answered the phone, Jimmy's girlfriend, he was, he was uh, separated from his wife at the time. But she answered the phone, and he went running out the door, pissed off, and took his gun and, and ran out the door. She knows whose voice was on that phone. Mm -hmm. So when she saw Gene, I looked at the eye contact between the two of them. And I knew. I mean, there was no no doubt. No whatsoever. doubt. It was Gene. That, that was her li her life in danger because she knew. Oh, well, she was. Of course, she was. She was scared. How do you extricate yourself from this life? How I did it was uh, well. I I took off. I came out here with my seven year old daughter with seven dollars in my pocket. I lived in uh, my car. I stole food in convenience stores. I couldn't tell anybody where I was. Well, from the top to the bottom. Yeah. And, uh, but what was the motivation where you packed up and said, okay, I'm out of here? I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with the fact you married one of these guys. Yeah, and he was he was already in hiding. So he there was stuff going on that uh, I wasn't privy to, but he had to get out of town. And then I got picked up by by the Mahoney's detectives, and they put me in a room in, in Mahoney's office with the guy that was going on waiting to go on trial for murder. His, oh. name, his name was Al DeCanzio. And they left me in there alone with him. That was nice. And what they were trying to do was get information out of me. And um, I suspect that room was wired. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> I would have been wired if I were there. I mean, he's sitting at the chief of detectives uh, in his leather chair with his feet up on, on his desk talking on the phone. Mm. So you know this guy's talking. And nobody on the streets knew he was talking. But if they knew I was talking to him, then my life would be in danger. And so I got off the phone and I, I called my husband and I, I, from a payphone and I told him what had just happened. He says, get in your car right now, forget about your clothes, get Tony and get out here. You're, you're not safe. So I did. But this was, when he left, that was my way of getting away from him because he was very abusive. Now I'm forced to go back with him. And so we were in Solana Beach at first and... Um, his abuse became so bad that, uh, and I had nowhere to turn to. I had no friends. I had no family. I was it emotional or physical? It was both. More, more physical. Didn't he put a but, gun to your head? And oh yeah, I tried to leave him several times. One time he put a gun to my head, had one bullet in it, and pulled the trigger twice. He hung me out of a two-story building by my ankles. Um, you know. And, Hope you weren't wearing a dress. And you know, you know, you know. The, the funny thing is, is. This was going on when Patty Hearst was in the news, and we would see her in the bank with the machine gun, and everybody would say, oh, she's on their side. And, and even though I didn't know there was a name for it, then I kind of put two and two together what was going on. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome, uh -huh. where you, you, you think you're in love with your captor because they're allowing you to live. And that was where I was at, you know. But I also knew that if I could get, just get away, you know, and where he wouldn't find me. Uh, but I had to do it in, so that if he... He couldn't find me because if he did, I knew I would be dead. So it was a very scary thing. Do you have any, did you have any kind of a girlfriend or someone you could go to or are you too afraid to talk? He knew who all my friends were, whoever I would run to, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, but here I was in California. So I, I one day my daughter was playing by the pool and um, 
And I had to wear sunglasses and, you know, because people talk to you. They want to know, oh, where are you from? What do you do? And I couldn't. <laughs> well, I'm, on, I'm on the lamp with the mob and uh, people are trying to kill me, but uh, <laughs> nice Don't weather. Don't worry about yeah. that. <laughs> so my, my daughter is in, in the pool. And I got my sunglasses on. I got my, my lounge chair pulled away from everybody. And, and I look up. I hear her laughing. And I, I look up and I, I realize that I hadn't heard her laugh in so long. And she was playing with these two little girls in the pool. I mean, I was, I was so wrapped up in my own pain that I hadn't seen hers until that moment. Mm. And, um, and when I saw and, and then these, the, the little girl's daddy came, and he started playing with his daughters, and they left her out, you know. And she oh. was just kind of sitting on the edge of the pool looking at him, like, won't you play with me too? It just broke my heart. I got up. I didn't think about it. I didn't plan anything. I just got up took her by the hand. I could see my husband playing tennis below the pool, so I knew where he was. Went back to the condo, grabbed what I could, threw it in my car, and started driving. And I had to drive past the tennis court, and he saw me. And he saw all the clothes piled up mm. in the back of the car, so he knew I was going. And the look on his face was like, you better turn around if you know what's good for you. And I just kept going. You didn't know what was good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was taking my chances. So I ended up, you know, I... I, I had no idea where I was. Thank God I went north instead of south, or I'd be in Tijuana today. But it, I got into Los Angeles, and I was on the like, on the five, and um, I could see the Hollywood signs, so I knew I was in Hollywood. But it was real smoggy, and it was five o'clock traffic. And my daughter was hungry, so I stopped to get her something to eat, and opened my wallet and realized I only had seven dollars in there. And I looked down at my gas tank, and and uh, I had three quarters of a tank, so I was okay there. But um, I just I just lived in the car and stole food. I couldn't call anybody. And I finally found a friend that I used to model with that lived in Brentwood. And he had a little studio. And he let me come in and stay there until I could figure out what I was going to do. Well, I couldn't model because they'd figure out where I was. The, the mob would know where I was. The, you know, my husband would know where I was. And so I couldn't really do that. And while I'm there, I'm watching a lot of television. And it seemed like every time there was a commercial, it was a car commercial. And I started really looking at it, and I said, you can't see the driver. So that's perfect. I could do that. You know? <laughs> but 35 years ago, they were putting wigs on guys. Women weren't doing that kind of thing. So I'd show up on the sets where they were shooting commercials, and I'd bug these directors, and they really weren't paying much attention to me. And uh, finally, one of them said, all right, you know, I'm sick of seeing your face. Show up on Tuesday. We'll see what you can do. So I showed up on Tuesday and showed them what I could do, and I've been working ever since. Wow. Did you change your name yeah. at that point? No. Mm -mm. No. Now, what happened to your husband? Did he do a, like, social security number check on you? I mean, did he find you? Well, he eventually did. I mean, the whole FBI thing came down. Uh, I had a stalker who kidnapped my daughter. Oh, jeez. I mean, it's just... It... Where'd the stalker come from? Not yeah, was he related to your husband? or? No, no. I met him at the Red Onion in Beverly Hills, um... I had a table to myself, and it was real crowded, and him and his partner came over and said, do you mind if we sit with you? There's, you know, no place to sit. And uh, we just started talking, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm from Rochester, and I'm getting, just got an apartment, but I need to get my furniture. He said, oh, my friend and I can help you get your furniture. So anyway, he uh, he helped me, and then never, never left. They just kind of like, you know, hung out. Gave him a piece of furniture. And then I couldn't get rid of this guy, you know, and... Uh, that's another whole bizarre story in its own, but anyway, I had to. I had to. Um, I had to have. I called the mob. You know, another facet of the mob, to have 
this guy put out of my life. You know? now, how did, did you have a, like a little book with you? Mob Connections, West Coast. <laughs> Mob Connections, East Coast. I mean, how'd you know who to call? Well, I called, I called Frankie, the, the guy that owned the bar where the first shooting had happened. Mm -hmm who uh, had always been in my life and you know, had been dear to me, and I knew if I was really in trouble, I could call him, you know. So, um, anyway, um, they... they Took care of it. They were going to... They really were going to kill him, and I just said, and I stopped it at that point. I just said, no, I just want every bone in his body broken, and I want him <laughs> to get the message, you know. And they did. He was in traction and uh, broken jaw, broken ribs. Bro everything was broken up. This broken is called arms. a divorce, by the way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this was the stalker. Now, what happened to your husband? Well, um, you know, I, I really want to leave something to the reader, but he, he's dead. And how he died is, uh, you know. Not your fault. You know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not her fault. The fact that it was run over by a vintage Lamborghini is no direct no, connection Actually, it, it was my fault. It was. It was my fault. Um, it just took seven years to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah. As he punctuates your yeah. comment with a gunshot. Yeah. Most yeah. abused wives have a tendency to go back. Did you ever have that feeling at all? Uh, yes, in the beginning, but you know, towards the end, um, I just knew I had to get away, and I just and I just played the game, you know, until I could I could really make the move and. You know, and I did it without a plan. I just, uh, I just took off and no money. You know, and just it was a very, very scary time in my life. Oh boy, Matt, how we got a commercial break coming up here, Mr. Producer Man? One minute. That's why we don't want to get into anything really, you know, intense <laughs> okay. here. So I'll give a plug for the book. We just shot uh, your publicist. <laughs> Company She Keeps. That's the same title on the paperback that's coming out? Yes. Uh -huh. It's coming out from Penguin Putnam people, right. which are wonderful people to do business with. Yes, and they'll yeah. be paying you lots of money soon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with more with the mafia wife, who is also the hot Kodak chick, right after this. Felipe Gregorio Cigars, simply the best cigar that money can buy. Felipe Gregorio, bringing tobacco to life.
I am the legendary Burl Bear. The attorney is Don Waldman, the singing psychic with the tarot cards in her pocket. It's Judy Fay, and our special guest is Georgia Durati, author of The Company She Keeps. Former famous fashion model, now incredibly adroit, is that the word, stunt driver, and former mafia wife, responsible for God knows how many deaths and... (laughs) (laughs) For most of us, the image we have of people who are, so to speak, in your position, the mafia princess, etc., we get it from the films, The Godfather, Goodfellas, The Sopranos. How accurate do you find those depictions as opposed to the way you actually lived it? Well, I remember when The Godfather first came out and how the mob reacted to it. Yeah, that's got to be interesting. They patterned themselves after that movie. Really? That's the way they were going to be portrayed. So they started dressing up in their pinstripe suits and, you know, (laughs) in their pinky rings and... But, you know, they're more, really more like the Sopranos with the bowling shirts and the, you know. <laughs> well, that's the image I've always the reality, had. reality, yeah. 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 I met with Robert Evans uh, was producing uh, Godfather. Uh, I understand that on set, when they were doing it, there were mob guys there on set supposedly as accuracy consultants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Robert, that, we're just enough. to make sure they were placated. <laughs> the, the so-called mob divorces, of which I've had several, they're not like any other I've ever been involved in. They're sort of off-the-record negotiations that never really get into the courts, per se. Mm. And um, did you just get your divorce and split, or did you have to go through that? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a long story because it, how I really broke away was because the FBI got involved. This stalker guy that was in the hospital called the FBI from his hospital bed. In fact, he called me three days after this, and he said, and I could barely hear his voice. He must have had the nurse holding the the phone to his ear or something because I I heard him say, I still love you. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like something out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) At least it was, if I can't have you, no one can. Oh, my God, I should have let him die. (laughs) And and then there was just no way to get rid of this guy. I mean, he just was not going to let go. So anyway, uh, he calls the FBI, and he tells the FBI that I know all the stuff about the mob and that I would be willing to talk to them if... They gave us enough money and changed our names and put us t- together in Europe someplace. Oh, how nice. I mean, this guy was a nut. Yeah. And he truly believed that. But the FBI had been working on a case for over a year involving my husband. And it was like, Lamondola's wife is going to talk to us. Wow. You know, we're going to put the last piece to the puzzle together, you know. So they believed him, and they picked me up. They took me to the Bonaventure Hotel and started sparring with me while I wasn't giving anything up. And they were getting really frustrated. And finally they said, well, Steve said, and I said, Steve. Steve, that nut. I said, <laughs> I said you know, you, you really want to do me a favor. I said, you'll get rid of that asshole. And so anyway, um, they were so pissed off because, you know, they lost thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars because they blew it. I knew now, you know, and I could warn everybody. So anyway, now they wanted him. They wanted me to help them get him, which I did. Him being, him being your, your husband. No, no, the, the, this guy Steve, who oh. is the stalker. Ah. So um, anyway, we had a whole, a whole Thing for sting him. set up for him. But the mob knew the FBI was, like, outside my door 24 hours a day. They knew my phones were tapped. They, knew, they, they were afraid to approach me. My husband was afraid to approach Everybody was afraid to approach me. And enough time had gone by where 
you know, uh, that's what I needed away from him was time. You know, for him to get it in his head, I was not coming back. And he was too afraid to approach me at that point because he knew I was being watched. So that's how I basically got rid of my husband. So did you actually have a divorce? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was all, it was all done through the mail. And, uh, and, and I had to fly back to New York for one day and, and just sign the papers. And then I came back. Were you worried that you'd get bumped off while you were in New York? No. You felt protected? Oh, well, no, because the mob war was going on at that time. So I got I got in and I got out. Well, Sammy G was on on trial for for um, at the time I went back he was on trial for Jimmy the Hammer's murder, and I ran into him and Effie Bailey and uh, just had a quick conversation with him and then I got right <laughs> hi how you doing <laughs> nice weather we're having hi bye <laughs> see I always thought that the wives were kept out of the business didn't know that much about what was going on it sounds like you really knew what was going on well. Um, you know, in the in the New York stuff, I mean, I was involved. I was very involved. I was driving the getaway cars, but at the time I was driving their getaway cars, I thought they were, I'd be parked around the corner, and I thought they were just in these places, you know, collecting the vig, you know, breaking legs, doing whatever they do. Until, <laughs> I just thought they were breaking know. legs, nothing important. Nothing important, right. <laughs> and one day they came out with their guns out and flung open the doors and said, step on it, and I heard the sirens in the background. <laughs> oh, jeez. And that's when I realized that I was actually a getaway driver. I mean, I didn't know. I, I mean, I was not privy to that. And um, but I quickly figured it out. <laughs> the chick knows how to drive. But like Don said, do you think the other wives didn't know what was going on? I guess maybe I watched too many movies when they say, you know, the wives aren't well, supposed no, to know. Well, no. I mean, there was a lot of things going on that, you know, I wasn't told, but I would overhear things or, you know, they'd have meetings and the door would be cracked open and I could, I, you know, I put two and two together, you know. Now, in a situation um, where someone gets bumped off, like, uh, you know, one guy kills the other guy and the wife, of course, is upset, her husband's been murdered, do they take care of the wife or is she just... Yes, they do. They, they do. give her like, we're sorry we killed your husband, here's a parting gift. They do that. They do that. <laughs> like $10,000 in a Cadillac or something? Well, see, now it's different. You know, everybody's, you know, you got guys like Sammy the Bull, Every, everybody's turning, you know, so nobody knows who to trust anymore. The mob is not what it used to be. It's not as, as strong as it was. And I mean, they had rules. Nobody's living by the rules anymore. I mean, God, he's the one who brought the mob down. You know, mm -hmm. by being so vocal and out there. And oh, he was way too public for his oh, own yeah, good. And absolutely. everybody told him that, and he just kept dressing up and playing the Kept role. Long yep. Don. Yeah. But I do remember when they were controlling Vegas, the showgirls really, really were taken care oh. of. Oh. Not anymore. That Vegas oh. was wonderful. Vegas back was in wonderful <laughs> back in that day. <laughs> it was great. It was great. great. You know, it was, it was actually better than It was better than It now. was better then. There's yeah. no toys about it. No. Absolutely. Because, and this is why I get on my soapbox about this, because I was handling all the advertising and promotion for the Aladdin uh, Hotel and the Sahara and all those, those things back, yeah. in the, back in the day. Not from there. I was in the Northwest. And that was people from Detroit that owned the Aladdin at the time. Right. And the, the guy who was actually really running the Aladdin was an indictment for murder. He would fly in and land on a helicopter on the top. He wasn't supposedly really running it, but he was. But they took care of everybody. I mean, oh. if you were a civilian and you worked for them, give you an example. When I signed my contract, uh, and you got to remember, this was 1974, 75, something like that. Uh, I was on retainer for 4000 a month. Now, that was pretty darn good money in 1970s, right? That's whether I did anything or not. Wow, that was a lot of money then. And, uh, but when they asked me to do something, which was advertising, I did it. But they made me wait 120 days for the first check. 
They did that. Bastards. With, they did that. <laughs> we're going to survive or what? <laughs> well, they, they said, we do that with everyone. We make you wait 120 days for the first check. They're making, you know, interest money. said, however, you can set your watch by when those checks arrive after this. And, boy, they were right. If it was supposed to be there on the second Tuesday of every month, I knew it was going to be there. Wow. And, you know, the thing is, is they made sure that the customer, the people who came to Vegas, were safe. You didn't have to worry about being ripped off. Mm -hmm. If you went into a hotel, and let's say you said to the the bellboy or whatever, I would like a gorgeous showgirl on her knees in 20 minutes with an eight ball of Coke. Yes, sir. And, (laughs) And you didn't get ripped off, and, you know, you didn't get your pocket picked. Because if someone was stealing money from a customer, they were stealing money from the mob. Oh, yeah. And, you know, walking in there with Sammy G and, and the entourage, it was, the red carpet was rolled mm-hmm. out. You didn't pay for a thing. Everything was done for you, brought yep. to you. It was just incredible. And even when the hotels were supposedly full and there wasn't a room available, if it was you, there was a lovely suite available. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. I stayed in lovely suites in hotels that were booked <laughs> solid back in that day. And you, it was safer there and nicer there. Yeah. Because yeah. they couldn't find and their violence. And you could dress. The... You could dress up. It's, yeah. You know, you could wear your boas and crowns <laughs> and, you know. And then the like corporations that. took over and then it just got weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this well, is when you you got entertainers in Las Vegas as opposed to spectacles in Vegas for shows. Tremendously different. That's right. Well, also, in that in those days, they used to pay the entertainers. Now, all the big shows, for the most part, are four-walled. The entertainer pays the hotel. Correct. They rent the room. They do everything. And it's not like the uh, the old days but, at all. You know, even after, after the corporations took over, the, the mob still had their hand in there. I, I, had, uh, I was away from these guys for... 10 years longer and they found me and here i now i have my company i'm i'm you know working as a stunt driver i'm i'm doubling stars in movies my friends are advertising people and you know it's a whole nobody knows my background nobody knows anything about me and i get a call from this guy sal who was uh he was the guy that picked me up in the limousine and introduced me to gambino and uh he says he doesn't even say hello he says Hey, Georgia, Georgia girl, that's what they used to call me. He said, uh, got a job for you. It's going to pay 50 grand. And I said, and I, kiddingly, I said, <laughs> Sal, I stopped transporting bodies in the 60s. I said, what, <laughs> what could be paying 50 grand? He says, I can't talk on the phone. He says, I got a ticket coming to you by uh, Federal Express tomorrow. He said, I'll have the name of the hotel, and you know what name I'll be registered under. And he hangs up. And now I know I got I got to go, you yeah. know. So the ticket came. It was to Las Vegas. He had the name of the hotel, and I, I went to the hotel. I knocked on the door, and uh, the door opens about four inches, and this guy looks out. He sees it's me, and he opens it all the way, and he's standing there with an Uzi in his hand. Oh, uh, trust he says, him. He says, Sal's waiting for you in the other room. So I, I walk in there. Not, not even, how have you been? Nothing. There's four and a half million dollars laid out on two queen-size beds and he just starts telling me what the deal is he just said okay you're going to take this car with this money it's going to be in the trunk he said you're going to go through texas and there's a checks checkpoint there he said you got to get there at exactly 12 o'clock because that's when they change guards he said nobody will be paying much attention then and who's going to pay attention anyway looking at your face so anyway i, I let him finish and i said sal i can't do this 
And he looks at me, and the fire's coming out of his eyes. He says, what do you mean you can't do this? You owe me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, Sal, look, I'm going through it. I mean, I made up all these stories. I'm going through a child custody case right now. If I, if I get caught, I'm going to lose my son. It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. So after about 15 minutes of that, um, he finally settled down and says, all right, I'm going to give you a pass this time. He said, but you remember, you owe me. And I left. I got out of it. At 3 o'clock that morning, they took off. They went they did it themselves. 3 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings, and it's Sal. And he says, uh, we got caught at the checkpoint. Hmm. And he said, they knew our names, Georgia. How do you suppose they knew that? Oh, my God. Well, that's not a call you want to get. I'm, like, away from this whole thing for years, you know. And now I'm, like, just when I thought I was out, they pulled Hold me back, back in. in, right? You're just never away, obviously. I said, so he thought you set him up. Yeah. I said, Sal, what are, you, are you, what are you saying? You think I blew you in? He said, well, it's looking like that right now. He says, only three people knew about this, me, you, and John. Gotti. Okay. So this was the skim money. That's what I thought you it know? was. I was going to yeah. ask you that. Yeah. And, you know, but I didn't know that at the time, you know. So I said, so, well, Sal, where are you right now? He says, I'm 10 miles down the road from the, from the checkpoint. And I says, they let you go? He says, yeah. And I said, Sal, what's the matter with you? I said, you go 10, 10 miles down the road further, there's going to be a roadblock and you're going to be dead. That's four and a half million dollars you left back there. And there's a silence. And he says, you know. You're not too dumb for a broad. He hangs up the phone. <laughs> and now I don't hear anything. Now, I'm waiting for somebody to come to my door. So I find my where I got my gun hidden, which I hadn't used in years. I blew the dust off, put it under my pillow. I wasn't going to run because then it would really, really look like I was guilty. So I just waited for him to show up, you know. And uh, two days later, in the newspaper in New York, the, the um, New York newspaper had said, the headlines read, Gotti's pal sale picked up with $3.8 million. <laughs> and I knew exactly how much wow. was there. And they did. They skimmed it. Yeah. So what, what happened to him? You know, he, they, he, he, uh, they put him in jail on a violation because he wasn't supposed to be out of New York. But that's all they did. They didn't do anything. That's more. all they could prove. But, you know, he didn't ask for the money back. You know, they, <laughs> oh, they, you could keep that. They kept the money. They kept the money. Did you walk around for a while looking over your shoulder? Well, then the FBI showed up uh. and the Internal Revenue, and they, they were showing pictures, you know, you know this guy, no. And then they show, they'd show me in a picture with that person. Oh, now I remember it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now it comes back to me. I have amnesia. Yeah, you have to remember, they never ask a question they don't know the answer yeah. to. That's part of the trade. I got stopped by a car. I was driving my mom's car. And it was the foggy, and I'm trying to find his address. I bump into the, the pavement there. Cop pulls me over. He says, is this your car? I said, officer, you know this isn't my car. And if it was, I'm the strangest-looking Dorothy Bear you ever saw in your life. <laughs> George Durante, the book is called The Company She Keeps. It's available in hardback, or it's coming out when in paper? It's coming out in October in mass paperback, and if they want a first edition hardcover, they can go to my website, which is thecompanysheKeeps.com, and I'll autograph it. It's an electrifying read because you can't believe it's true, and it is. Hey, we should do a double whammy. My new book comes out in October also. We can oh. we can do a twofer. Yeah, well, you know what? We'll do, we could do a dinner with the author. Hey, I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Don Waldman. Not enough time. We got to do this again. Yeah. Right. Well, let's stick around and do Matt's show. That'll be fun. Right. Judy, thank you. Matt Allen's program is coming up next on Outlaw Radio. 
Oh, baby. Baby, baby, baby. Who is that little black boy? <laughs> He's about this tall, but boy, that kid can dance. Whoa! The other guys, their career is over. From this point on, they have no career, no future, except when he slips them on the side. Come on. I'm through with standing in line for some fun to begin. But I found a good thing leaving me with a grin. It's time for Outlaw Radio to begin. Soda cribs and a bathroom I can play baseball in And a king-size tub big enough for ten plus me I'll need a, a credit card that's got no limit And a big black chair with a bedroom in it Gonna join the mile high club at 37,000 feet I want a new tour bus full of old guitars My star on Hollywood Boulevard Somewhere between Cher and James Dean is fine for me I'm gonna trade this life for fortune and fame I even cut my hair and change my name Cause we all just wanna be a big rock star To live in hilltop bosses driving 15 cars The girls come easy and the drugs come cheap Well I'll stay skinny cause we just want Just won't eat it. We'll hang out in the coolest bars. We'll 
Oh my god, are you going? Are you yeah. going? And I'll bring a guy who doesn't talk to us because he likes, okay? <laughs> 